0: The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to Always Another Way podcast. My name is Marina Sprocky-Spriggs and I'm your host. I have a master's in professional counseling. I'm the Ippy Award winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, and Nasty Divorce A Kid's Eye View. I write positive divorce advice for the Huff Post, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to out of the box thinkers, and it's for those who hear the call of hope in always another way. And if you are extremely rigid and set in your beliefs, then this probably isn't your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can, and do change. And I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast, for subscribing and liking. And if you haven't already, if you would go over to iTunes, subscribe, and rate, that will allow the podcast to move up in the rankings. The more it moves up in the rankings, the more people can see it. And the more people can hear this important information about doing things another way. And my guest today, I was going to talk to Sarah Gale from the Zendo project, which is psychedelic harm reduction. And, uh, unfortunately, she woke up with not feeling well. And so we're going to have her on another time. And so I thought I'd continue the conversation because suicide is just not something that happens when a celebrity dies by suicide, but happens daily. In fact, um, 22 veterans a day die by suicide, 123 other people, and just this past week in the United States, 865 people died by suicide. And it's similar in other developed nations. So, all the time is a good time to talk about this. And I'm gonna just take you back to, you know, it was a, it was a hush hush topic for a long time. And the first time, you know, I don't know that anybody explicitly talked about suicide ever, but the first time I had, um, come in contact with that, I was 16 years old and I had a friend and, you know, we just gotten into some trouble and she, you know, we ran away once. And then, um, I, I came back like after a day and, um, you know, she didn't, but then things happened. And then I find out she's in the hospital because she tried to kill herself. And then even at that time, like, and I couldn't put two and two together being 16, like the running away, the issues with her family, like that that it was connected. I just was, oh, she's happy. Like, I don't know why that happened. Um, and she, she's still alive today. So that's the good news. But then I get into college and I have a good friend of mine who was dating a, um, a guy who was actually physically abusive to her, but we didn't know that um, because she hid that at the time. And there's lots of reasons why, you know, there's the silence around domestic violence. That's another episode. But what this guy would do was tell her things like, if you break up with me, I'll kill myself. So he was also threatening suicide, but this time with another person. And that's a little bit different even though that person is still crying out for help, because that is not a threat that anyone should take lightly, nor should you take it lightly. So, um, are we going to talk more about it? And I think it's time, because in 2016 alone, about 45,000 lives were lost to suicide. And that's more than two and a half times the number of homicides. So, It sounds like we're a lot more dangerous to ourselves than others. And the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published a survey showing that suicide rates increased by 25% across the United States over nearly two decades ending in 2016. 25 states experienced a rise in suicides by more than 30%. So, you know, wow, that's ridiculous. And then, you know, we talk about okay, you know, there's the get help, reach out, you know, reach out to people, reach out back and forth. But what gets someone from birth to died by suicide? It doesn't just happen. And not talking about these things, and we're not going to lay blame on anyone at all. Um, The there's a lot of factors that go in, but when someone dies by suicide. The end rests on them, but it doesn't mean that there weren't other factors that brought the person to this point, but it is, it's not a blame game. So um, two things. First, I want to tell you something about, um, this is from an article by Lisa Firestone. It's called Suicide, What Therapists Need to Know. So I'm going to read this little bit right here. There are some who consider suicide a human right and who therefore believe no one should interfere with a person's decision to consider suicide. But this thinking fails to understand that people are divided within themselves. One part of them wants to live and is goal-directed and life-affirming, while the other part is self-critical, self-hating, and ultimately self-destructive. This ambivalence is always a factor when it comes to suicide. More than 3,000 people have leapt to their death from San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge But out of the 26 people who survived the jump, all 26 of them reported that the moment they leapt from the bridge, they regretted their action and wanted to live. So what does that tell you? In the moment, the mind is telling you something untrue. So what leads to these suicidal tendencies? This is also from that same article from Lisa Firestone. Recent research into the biological factors in suicide indicates that what puts people at risk for suicide is the result of a genetic and environmental interaction. Genetic influences, such as serotonin polymorphisms, increase the risk for suicide if accompanied by childhood trauma. Childhood trauma also affects a child's developing HPA axis, neural connections, and neurochemistry. By design, humans are programmed to remember what scares them as a means to avoid future danger. Thus, traumatic evidence in a childhood will have a lasting influence and correlate with their suicide risk later in life. Now, not all suicidal individuals are victims of parental abuse, however, All children are impacted by parental ambivalence while growing up. At those times when a parent is under stress and exhibits a level of anger and aggression that is traumatizing to a child, children often disconnect from themselves and identify with the parent so as not to experience their own powerlessness in a situation. Children incorporate the hostility the parent was directing toward them and take on these negative attitudes as their own. Children then reenact the initial trauma by mistreating themselves in a manner similar to how they were mistreated. Research demonstrates that physical and especially sexual sexual abuse has a high correlation with suicide. That's a fact, and I'll say that again. Research demonstrates that physical and especially sexual abuse has a high correlation with suicide. And you want to see how prevalent that is? And if you're one of those parents that say, I was hit, it's okay, you can find the long term research on corporal punishment, and it's not good. And that's not my opinion. Anyways, people who acquire the ability to disassociate and disconnect in times of stress have a higher suicide risk. Sociologist Israel Orbach, PhD, states that suicidal people have a very high tolerance for physical trauma, physical pain through dissociation. They also have a very low tolerance for mental pain. And mental pain is something that characterizes a suicidal person. So these are all things that lead a person to this point. And that being said, There's even something else, there's an article by Roxanne Roberts and I'm going to read a little bit of this to you and then we're going to see if we can get her on the phone. She's traveling right now, but she had written this article, she writes for the Washington Post, in 1996 is when it was originally posted, it's called, Suicide is Desperate, It's hostile. It's tragic. But mostly, it's a bloody mess. Excuse me. The blood was like jello. That's what blood gets like after you die before they tidy up. Somehow, I'd expected it would be gone. The police and coroner spent more than an hour behind the closed door. Surely it was someone's job to clean it up but when they left, it still covered the kitchen floor like the glazing on a candy apple. You couldn't mop it up, you needed a dustpan and a bucket. I got on my knees, slid the pan against the linoleum and lifted chunks to the bucket. It took hours to clean it all up and even after that, we found pools I had missed under the stove and the sink. It wasn't until I finally stood up that I noticed pictures from his wallet. The wooden breadboard had been pulled out slightly, and four photographs were spilled across it. Now what? I thought with annoyance. What were the police looking for? But then it hit me. The police hadn't done it. These snapshots—one of my mother, one of our dog, and two of my brother and me—had been carefully set out in a row by my father. It was his penultimate act, just before he knelt on the floor. Put the barrel of a twenty-two rifle in his mouth and squeeze the trigger. He was 46 years old and I was 21. And this week marks the 20th anniversary of his death, and I'm still cleaning up. By the time you finish this article, another person in the United States will have killed himself, died by suicide. More than 30,000 people do it every year, one every 15 minutes. Few receive the attention Admiral Jeremy Borda's suicide is getting. And this was back in 96. This was something that came along. My father's was a textbook case. Depressed white male with gun offs himself in May. December may be the loneliest month. April the cruelest. But May is the peak time for suicide. No one knows why, but I can guess. You've made it through another winter, but your world is no warmer. This year... Thousands of families will begin the process that ours began that night 20 nights ago, 20 years ago. Studies show that their grief will be more complicated, more intense, and longer-lasting than for any other form of death in the family. They will receive less support and more blame from others. Some will never really get over it. Children of suicides become a higher risk for suicide themselves, and I once asked a psychologist why. Many children feel that they don't have a right to be any happier than their parents were, he said. To be happier is a form of betrayal. These are the legacies of suicide. Guilt, anger, doubt, blame, fear, rejection, abandonment, and profound grieving. Most people don't want to talk about it and don't even want to think about it. It's too raw and confusing. Shortly after he died, I remember thinking, I wonder how I feel about this in 20 years. 20 years seemed like a lifetime away. Would I remember his suicide? Would I think about it much? Would I still feel angry, guilty, sad? Would time heal all wounds? 20 years later, yes, I remember. No, I don't think about it often. I don't feel angry or guilty or sad, but no, time does not heal all wounds. My father's suicide is simply a part of me. Think of your life as a can of white paint. Each significant experience adds a tiny tiny drop of color. Pink for a birthday, yellow for a good report card, worries are brown, setbacks gray. Lavender, my favorite color when I was a little girl, is for a pretty new dress. Over time, a color begins to emerge, your personality. When a suicide happens, someone hurls in a huge glob of red. You can't get it out, you can't start over. The red will always be there, no matter how many drops of yellow you add. It colors the memories that came before it. It shades all the choices that followed. It's always there. The call came about 9 p.m. It was a Friday night in suburban Minneapolis. The restaurant was packed. I was racing from the bar with a tray of drinks for my customers when the manager gestured me to the phone. It's your mother, she said. Roxanne, he's got a gun. He's in the garage with a gun. You have to come. There had been many, many threats. Be home in a half hour, he would say to my mother, or I'll be dead. Sometimes she dashed back from the office. Sometimes she refused. This was different. There had never been a weapon before. I have to go, I said to my boss, hoping I wouldn't be fired. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I made many choices that night. Some were smart, some stupid, some crazy. I believed, deep down, my father would indeed kill himself, sooner or later. I knew my mother was in danger, and I knew he blamed me for a lot of his misery. Looking back, I feel lucky to have survived that night. I drove past the house. He was standing in the shadows of the front yard, and I couldn't see if he had the gun. I had sped to a phone booth two blocks away and dialed. She answered, he's in the front yard. I said, can you get out? Five minutes later, she walked up to the car. He was quiet now, she said. She told him she was going to talk to me, but would be back. Then she dropped the bombshell. He had held her at gunpoint for two hours before she called the restaurant. We attempted a rational conversation. We came to, what seemed at the time, a rational decision. We pulled up to the house, and my father came out the front door with a gun. He wanted to talk. Give me the gun, I said. He refused. We can't talk until the gun is gone, we said. He shook his head. Come inside, he asked my mother. She shook her head. He went back in, and we drove to a coffee shop nearby. Frantic, we debated what to do next. To this day, I'm still astonished that it never occurred for us to get help, to call the police, a hotline, or anybody. It was almost midnight, exhausted, my mother wanted to go home. She would stay the night if he let me take the gun away. Tomorrow... After a night's sleep, we'd all be able to think clearly. The house was silent. The door to the kitchen was shut, ominous. My mother reached it first, opened it. He did it, she whispered, and slumped against the wall. I looked in and then pulled her back and shut the door again to prevent her little dogs from running in all the blood. Why didn't I kiss him, she asked. What? I said, confused. Before the coffee shop, he asked me to kiss him, and I wouldn't. She sank into the couch. Why didn't I kiss him? There was a time when suicide was considered a noble act of noble men. There was a time when corpses of suicides were dragged through the streets, refused Christian burial, and all the family's worldly goods were seized by the state. There was a time when romantics, inspired by Goethe's the sorrows of young Werther, embrace suicide as a sign of their sensitivity. Now we have long and passionate debates about assisted suicide, which pales beside the much larger issue. How do we feel about suicides when there isn't a terminal disease and a supportive family on hand? How do we feel about suicide if a 46-year-old guy just doesn't want to live anymore? A man whose marriage is falling apart, whose kids are growing up and moving out, who can't seem to hold down a job, reason enough? How do we feel about someone who's depressed, but won't get help? Who blames all his problems on someone else? Who emotionally terrorizes and blackmails the people he loves? Is that okay too? Can you fault him for anything if he ends up dead? There are people who will tell you, convincingly, that depression is so dark that it blots out all reason, perspective, and other survival mechanisms. There are experts who will tell you that suicide is rage turned inward. A desire to kill becomes a need to die. And this is what I will tell you. Suicide is the last word in an argument, maybe an argument you never knew you were having. It's a grand exit, one guaranteed to make everybody stop in his tracks, pay attention, and feel bad. It is meant to be the last scene of the last act of life, curtain down, end of story. Except it isn't. Tosca jumps off the parapet, and I wonder who finds the shattered body. Romeo and Juliet die with a kiss, and I grieve for their parents. Madame Butterfly collapses on the dagger, and I cry for her little boy in the sailor suit. The calls begin, first to my father's only brother, who lived three blocks away, then to the police. Officers arrive, then detectives and someone from the coroner's office. Someone came into the living room to ask questions. I answered, yes, he was depressed. Yes, he'd threatened to kill himself. No, there wasn't a note. I'd sent my mother next door. Watch for Mike's car, I instructed. You have to watch for Mike's car. This was the night of my brother's high school senior prom. The dance was on a boat. We didn't know where. There was an all-night party and a picnic the next day. I called his girlfriend's house. There's an emergency at home, I said. Tell him to call. An hour passed. No call. The detectives were still in the kitchen when Mike's car slowly turned on the street and found a sea of police cars, lights flashing. Neighbors huddled in clusters across the street. I watched from the front step as my mother ran to him. "'Your father shot himself and he's dead,' she said, guiding him to the neighbor's house. I watched as the police took the body out, dripping thick drops of blood from the kitchen to the front door. I watched my uncle stare blankly when I asked him to clean up the kitchen. Frank, I ordered, you have to help me. I don't want Mike to have to see this. White-lipped, he watched as I scooped up buckets of blood and flushed them down the toilet. I threw him an old sheet and told him to start wiping. Years later, I learned how angry I made him, how he never forgave me for making him do that. He didn't like blood on his hands. I was alone in the kitchen again when I noticed the pictures from my father's wallet. There were two portraits of his children, and the first one... I'm four or five, and my brother's maybe a year old. The other was more recent, taken from Dad's last birthday just a few months earlier. He loved both pictures. Everybody knew Mike Roberts loved his kids. If he had to kill himself, I thought angrily, why did he do it tonight? Why did he spoil his son's last night as a teenager? Why ruin prom night? You selfish bastard, I thought. You couldn't have waited one more night. Suicide is poison. In 1988, Gloria Vanderbilt's 23-year-old son flung himself off the balcony of her 14th floor Manhattan apartment as she watched in horror. His last words to his mother, expletive you. Suicide is a desperate act, but it's also a hostile act. It begets more hostility. It gives the survivors the perfect opportunity to express all their real feelings about one another, good and bad. Years of petty resentments, Years of unmentioned slights and snubs grabbed center, center stage. Something or somebody had driven my father to take his life. Somebody had failed to recognize the symptoms. Somebody had failed him over and over. It was somebody's fault. It had to be somebody's fault. Anybody but the guy who did it. My mother was never well liked by my father's sisters and so they concluded that what had happened was my mother's fault. She was having an affair. She had driven him to it. That's what my father had told them before he died. The fact that she wore an aqua suit to the funeral was proof, wasn't it? And I? I was on her side. So it was my fault, too. The fact that I didn't fall apart at the funeral was proof, wasn't it? There is no one truth. There are too many truths, and my mother swears there was no affair. Did I ever know? Have I forgotten? And in the end, of course it doesn't justify the suicide, even if it's true. Death makes most of us stupid. We say the wrong thing, or we don't say anything at all. Suicide is worse. Sometimes it makes people cruel. After the funeral, we were simply abandoned by my father's family. My mother was still numb, but I was confused and angry. No calls, no help no kindness. There were no invitations to dinner, not even Thanksgiving or Christmas. Two years later, I found out why. They thought my mother and I killed him. At one of those little get-togethers after he died, my father's family decided that perhaps my mother and I had cleverly managed to murder my father and make it look like a suicide. There wasn't a note, after all. One of my cousins was so skeptical, he went to the coroner and asked to look at the police photos. It was a classic suicide, the coroner assured him. After all we'd been through, this accusation was simply too much to bear. What kind of cruelty was this, and what had we done to deserve it? I vowed never ever to speak to any of them again, and when a distant member of the family, a devoted wife and mother, found her husband dead in the garage sucking the end of an exhaust pipe, I was almost glad. Good, I thought fiercely. Now they'll understand suicide happens in nice families too. Suicide is poison. It poisons the ground beneath it, Anything that grows in that ground is poisoned. The fruit is poisoned, but people feast on it. It's a terrible mistake, and to survive, you have to get the hell out of here. And second guessing is the devil's game, for there are no answers and infinite questions. But it is inevitable, escapable refrain. Like a bad song you can't get out of your mind. What if, what if, what if? What if we'd forced him to get help? What if we'd had him committed? What if the night he died, we'd call the police? Why didn't we? Part of it was a natural tendency towards privacy. Family business is kept in the family. Part of it was arrogance believing that we knew father best, or at least we could handle whatever he threw at us. I think I knew my father would have charmed the police, sent them away, leaving him furious with me, furious with my mother, dangerous and armed. And I think we've got Roxanne on the line. You have me on the line. Hello, Roxanne. Well, I just got done reading your article, and... um. Just wanted to talk to you about how much of an influence this has just all had um, because this is just a view that I've really never seen before except for in private.
0: Um, When I originally wrote it, uh, which was um, 22 years ago, part of my motivation was that everything I had read about suicide was either very clinical, you know, sort of scientific studies and demographics and and that sort of thing or they tended to be very romanticized version of the person who had died um you know mourning the loss of that person all of which were appropriate but I felt like there was this whole piece of it that I had experienced that really wasn't discussed and so I wrote it it was published and I got this tremendous um outpouring from other families that had experienced a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, And they too sort of were so relieved that they could talk about the complexity of emotions that they had experienced. Uh, Because, you know, most of the time when someone dies, you're just supposed to be sad. And uh, suicides bring up so many other emotions. And this was a place for them to talk about that.
1: Yeah, and especially the part where, you know, because I've known people who have done this, like the kind of the emotional blackmail threatening, and it's, it's just completely paralyzing.
0: because you, You're talking about prior prior yeah, to their death? Prior, prior,
1: yeah. or, or just that they never did, but it, but it used this as a tactic. And um, a girlfriend of mine in college was dating a guy who was physically abusive, but would say that to her, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. And was very uh, threatening suicide if she did anything, and just the the hostage holding. And she never told us any of this until he had tried to choke her. And this was like much later. But but all up into this, it's something that you can speak clearly. Why families hold on to this? Because you
0: know so many reasons. <laughs> well, I think part of it is listen. You know, when you love someone, you want to protect them. You want them to be okay. And part of the unspoken contract um, in life is that you have the backs of the people that you love and you'll do anything to make sure they're okay. And this is particularly critical when we're talking about parents who lose a child to suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, The the amount of blame that goes on is is pretty shocking, really. Um, Everybody wants there to be a reason. And since somebody has died, they've sort of paid what a lot of people see as the ultimate price. They don't want to blame that person. So then it's everybody else. It's like your job was to see the signs. How could you have missed it? How could you have not done something? How can, why didn't you make sure they got help? And even if the family members have done all those things, it's never enough when somebody dies.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely it's not a blame game of other people well, it is yeah. I mean well, it
0: is it shouldn't be, but yeah. it's a terrible I mean I would say that is the one of the worst things about the aftermath of suicide is unlike most other deaths um, the belief that somebody had to be responsible besides the person who killed themselves. I actually got an email I was this article was reprinted last weekend and sort of went viral. And I got an email from someone who said um, they disagreed with me about the fact that depressed people had any responsibility to get help. And because I had said, I don't ever fault somebody for getting depression, but I do think they have a responsibility to attempt to get some kind of help or treatment if at all possible. Mm -hmm. And I also recognize that depression makes it hard to do that. Yes. Yes and um and but the person said that the people suffering from depression can't do that and you were wrong to assign any responsibility to them and i said well if you absolve somebody who's depressed of any responsibility for doing anything to try to get better then you effectively transfer that to everybody else around them and it becomes somebody else's responsibility and that is this you know this vicious cycle of suicide. Um, If somebody dies, people want there to be a reason and and it's very hard to sort of say depression is such a such an evil and pervasive thing and sometimes like any other disease, it, it claims victims. Suicide is different. They want there to be a reason and they want it to be prevented and so anybody who's left behind is seen to bear some of that responsibility.
1: Yeah, and just in how isolating and alone that just must have felt, and especially just even way back then when you wrote this, because I know people, and nobody used to talk about it. If somebody died by suicide in the obituary, there was no mention of it. I'd only been to one funeral once where they actually addressed the issue. He died by suicide. Here's what was going on. But usually you know that's a zipper you don't tell people that
0: well there's a lot of reasons for that you know it's a it's a sin in some religions um, but families I think are very ashamed of it and honestly part of the reason that I'm encouraging people to talk about these things is that there's no reason to be ashamed of depression depression exists like other diseases exist in the world and suicide it's not the fault of the people left behind. And it's so hard to try to convince people that it's tragic as it is. It's not their fault. Yes. Um, and that is, um, is a message. If that's the only thing I managed to sort of get out there into the world, that's the message I want people to have because it is, you know, I've, I, People have written me who have contemplated suicide, and then they said they read my article and it caused them to rethink um, maybe the effect that it might have. Yeah. And I said, I said, you know, a lot of people think that their family will be better off without them. And what I always say is, your pain might end and theirs will begin.
1: That's for sure. And just the unanswered questions that will never be answered,
0: ever. You know? It's unlike any other death. I mean, every, every death can be devastating to a family and it can be tragic and it can be sad and it can be sudden and it can be unfair. But most of the time we don't assign blame to survivors for somebody's death. This is really the only kind of death where for the most part, um, that's almost a universal experience for the people left behind.
1: You're right. And almost even equated to, I mean, although there's, I mean, there's definitely levels of abuse all in your story. And that goes with domestic violence and other things where the, you know, the victim is usually the one blamed. What did you do that you stayed in that situation or that you did this? There's a lot of things wrapped up in that too, that are, that become the point and that goes with depression and suicide. At what point do you help somebody? And then at what point does it cross the line that you're being abused? Well, I mean,
0: yeah. Listen. There's, there's, my story personally had a lot of dysfunction in it that, that separate and distinct from the actual end uh, of my father's life, and and it's hard in some ways to separate it all out. And I don't even know if you can separate it all out. But there are also families where there were no signs. Everything seemed to be fine, and yet there's a suicide in the family. Right. So I think it's. Um,
1: it's so 45,000 people a year, a lot.
0: So I was just gonna say it's so complicated. It's, you know, we're trying to figure out how to solve, you know, sort of a great human mystery, a mystery of the mind and a mystery of the heart and a mystery of the soul. Um, And we haven't figured it out yet. And in fact, it seems to be getting worse. And um, at least what we can begin to do is talk about it in a way that doesn't judge. It uh, doesn't judge the people for being depressed and doesn't judge survivors for the action of somebody else.
1: I completely agree. And just the more we talk about it, the more it's out there. I think there's wonders, and also like it happened to me too. Or I've also experienced this, just that commonality is that you're not alone. And I think a lot of people, especially dealing with somebody with mental illness, feel isolated and alone. You don't want to tell anybody you're embarrassed. There's all these things wrapped up into it. But anybody who's lived long enough in life, you're going to hit some ups. You're going to hit some downs.
0: And I think part of talking about suicide, at least for me, uh, the, the critical issue is helping people understand that no life is perfect. No person is perfect. And there are ups and downs and then the question becomes, how do you deal with those downs? And if you're feeling overwhelmed by those downs, that it's a sign of strength to ask for help, not a sign of weakness. You know, the idea of being able to give people the tools to deal with those inevitable ebbs and flows of life.
1: Absolutely.
0: And to let and to let them know that look at you know, you're not the only person who has felt worthless or sad or overwhelmed or tired or joyless and and the difference uh between depression and other diseases is that properly managed it's entirely possible to go on and live a really good life Absol- if you can get past sort of that darkness absolutely. and and that's part of what I hope can come out of this absolutely well i just want to thank you so much
1: for just talking to us on the fly real quick. You were really awesome when I reached out to you and I, cause I got this article sent to me over the weekend and then looked at it and I'm like, Oh, 96, but still, and then saw that it was redone again, but it, it hasn't changed. It's actually gotten
0: worse. And um, I, so, I'm sorry to say it's as relevant today as it was 20 years ago. And so, um, you know, the good news is that what I've been telling everybody who's writing is Share it with people that you think it might help. Um, talk to people about it. Help them give voice to feelings that maybe other people are uncomfortable with. And, and um, and you know, if it helps save just one person, it is absolutely worth that extra effort.
1: I believe so, so too. I believe so, too. Well, thank you so very much, Roxanne. And then... Um, I'm just going to talk about a few things that you can do So, if you are just feeling um, suicidal. So um, Israel Orbach, the PhD says, it's not enough to love the suicidal patient. It's not enough to give him hope. It's not enough to change the external environment. You must deal with the changing self-destructive processes, these inner patterns that erode the self and mental well-being. And I actually have, um, I'm a therapist, and I use something called revisioning that was created by Dr. Mark Ryder. It is peer-reviewed, and I've had many suicidal patients come in, and in two sessions, I had a woman who was often very suicidal. We used it uses a mirror, using the mirror neuron network. We worked with her using revisioning, and just yesterday, I had talked with her, and she, her thought pattern has completely changed not suicidal anymore completely sees a different side of life value and sees hope and so there are trauma specific therapies that people can use there's if you are feeling suicidal there are things that you can do that brain can change and you can be in another space that's for sure and so i just want to thank everybody for listening and you know there is always another way (music)
0: Bye. <music>